when we think about seven generational values, you think about the three generations before you, your generation and the three behind you. So it's a more, more a matter of respect of traditions that your elders had, respect for the people in your current time, and then thinking about future generations. That's Michael Lavender. He's a Native American architect. He's on a mission to expand the ranks of Native American entrepreneurs, professionals, and architects. I'm Chris Farrell. And I'm Twyla Dang. And this is Small Change, Money Stories from the Neighborhood. Michael is a partner with DSGW, a local architecture firm. We spoke to him from his office in Lake Elmo, Minnesota, a small town 14 miles outside of the Twin Cities. So just to start off, your name and how you'd like to be identified. Um, Michael Laverger. I am a Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa, a citizen of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa. Um, I'm an architect. So tell us a little bit about your path to becoming an architect. Well, it started out when I was very young. My dad was a journeyman kind of civil engineer. I uh, learned a lot when he was in the, when the army. Um, he served in World War II in the Korean conflict and he wanted me to become an engineer. Um, as a journeyman kind of civil engineer, he did a lot of training of, of young engineers coming out of college and he said, that's just not the way to go. I want you to be an engineer so you can, you don't have to go through this. So, um, he taught me algebra when I was in the sixth grade. And uh, I, I finished high school algebra by the time I was in 10th grade, and he wanted me to be an engineer, but I also liked art. So I did a lot of drawing, and as a kid, I drew, you know, my dream house. It just was one of the things I did. I'd sit at the kitchen table and draw my dream house, the plans, and nobody taught me. I just kind of figured it out and uh, did all that stuff. And then when I was in high school, I did a book report on Leonardo da Vinci, and uh, I learned that he was an artist and he was a scientist. And he was an architect and a sculptor and everything else in between and thought, you know what, I want to look into architecture. What's that about? Because I looked at some of his buildings. And I was like, these are amazing. And uh, I did a book report on that. And then I did a career study on architecture. Okay. So architecture is becoming his passion. He decided to learn more about it. He took a trip to North Dakota State University. And it's a remarkable story. When I was a junior in high school, I went to NDSU. Um, for a kind of a field trip on my own, just to take a tour and, and want to look at their architecture school and walked into the president's office at NDSU. I didn't know you couldn't do that. I just kind of went in and said, <laughs> can I see the president? And I did, didn't know. You don't know those things when you're a kid, you know? Yeah. They said, sure, come on in. And I, and I went in and met with him and he talked to me, says, and he brought me over to the school of architecture and says, you want to be an architect? And I said, I'm sure, I'd like to be. He says, well, I'll give you a scholarship if you come to school here. We've, we haven't had any. We've only had one Native American graduate from our school, from School of Architecture, and I'd like you to be the second. And so I said, sure. And uh, at that time, I just said, I'm going to school at NDSU and went there and, and uh, you know, went there when I, after my senior year and graduated shortly after, and I became their second uh, graduate architect. Uh, there's been several more since then, but that's kind of been my path is kind of almost uh, kind of by chance, but uh, it's something that I really find that I love. I love doing architecture. It's, it's and how did the First American Design Studio come about? First American Design Studio, um, I've always wanted to have my own architecture firm, to be an owner. And the reason that I wanted to do that is, is there's multiple, but to validate my indigeneity 
in the architecture community. Um, a lot of times, um, if you're an indigenous architect and you work for a non-indigenous firm, a non-native firm, um, your, your point of view sometimes aren't as um, considered. Are there very many indigenous architects? There is not. Um, in, in the United States, there probably is only um, 15, 15 to 20 indigenous architects that I know of. Wow. Um, there are some that self-identify to the American Institute of Architects. If you go to the AIA.org and American Institute of Architects um, and look at their diversity plan, um, they have all these charts and graphs and they say, you know, uh, Caucasians are this amount of our, of our, of our, um, members and, you know, African Americans are this and Latinos are this and all these other things. And then they get to American Indian and it's zero percent. Well, I'm not zero percent. So no. we actually had a discussion with the American Institute of Architects to talk to them about this, that, um, even though you rounded down, you need to round up to show that there's something. So they've changed that statistic. Now it says 1% because it was like 0.4 of total or something. And so it, it was just a matter of, of having them recognize that there are indigenous architects because as a kid, if I would have looked at an AIA website and I said, geez, there aren't any American Indians who are architects. I'm not even going to go there. Yeah. Um, now that they say 1%, well, geez, 1% is better than zero, right? Michael is part of a growing community of indigenous architects. He was involved in a book project that highlighted indigenous architects from around the world. The book is called Our Voices, Indigeneity and Architecture. And it was all indigenous. So the publisher was indigenous. The editors, there was three editors. Um, they were all indigenous. One was Aboriginal from Australia. One was First Nations from Canada and one was indigenous from New Zealand. And then there was like 20 different indigenous architects from all over the world. And we each wrote our own chapter and I was included in that. So it's pretty cool that it was indigenous throughout. And, um, as the editors, when I give them my, my reviews and my different pieces of the, uh, of my chapter, they would look at my sources and said, is that an indigenous source? And I say, no, it's not. And they said, well, you need to look for indigenous sources to source this book. So it's not only all those other things, but the sources are indigenous. I said, well, nobody has that source. They said, well, you're the source. You become the source so that people will be able to ah. cite you. So it's kind of an interesting process. So um, it's kind of a, there's kind of a groundswell of indigenous architects right now. University of New Mexico has a lot of them uh, up and coming in college. Um, there's been a few that have graduated from University of New Mexico, University of Arizona. I'm working with my alma mater, uh, North Dakota State, to get a uh, scholarship fund and endowment started so we can uh, fund at least one Indigenous student in architecture school um, every year. That's one of my goals. Um, I think if I was to retire one of these days and a kid came up to me and said, you know, I become an architect because of you, or you inspired me, or I got this scholarship at NDSU, I think that would that would be my legacy, is to have more kids become architects. So is that one of the things you do with your speaking? Yes. Yep. One of my speeches I give every year uh, at conference is uh, why our communities more, need more Indigenous architects. Um, and the reason that it's important is because there's 574 Indigenous nations in the country, federally recognized um, tribes in the, in the country. 
And let's say that each one of them has 10 kind of large projects, schools, hospitals, you know, all these other different places. So, you know, there's potentially 5,740 different buildings on reservations. And I would bet that less than 1% have been designed by a Native American or an Indigenous architect. Well, if I design a clinic and and for one Indigenous nation, one tribe, and that Indigenous clinic uh, provides service to 4,000 members a year, well, that one project, because of the extra care and design considerations that we did from an Indigenous perspective, did, so much, did uh, serve those Indigenous people. Um, you can imagine that we're kind of an amplitude magnifier. So if you had more buildings that had more care and consideration from an Indigenous perspective of those 5,740, just imagine how much more of lives you can improve. Instead of, I think a lot of times tribes are looking for the quick fix, they'll put up a pre-engineered metal building or they'll hire an architect and not have any cultural considerations. Um, we really at the American Indian Council of Architects and Engineers push to have them hire Indigenous designers or not just have them be a checkbox and have them be on a team, but lead the team. It's just, it's just really important. Yeah. So that's kind of where, where my passion is. So uh, I hope it's okay with you. I want to read something from your website and it's about your mom asking you to help her make a ceremonial pipe. And quoting from the story, one thing she told me is that pipes sometimes take a long time to make. It's not because they're easy to produce. They are. She told me that when you make a pipe, you have to have a good heart, never when you're in doubt or angry or sad. If you make a pipe when you're not in a good spirits, the pipe carries those feelings with it. And whoever uses that pipe to pray will feel it too. So how does that inform your architecture? It forms it greatly. Um, so we've been developed here at DSUW and just through my time um, just working on projects, seven principles of Indigenous engagement. And so these seven principles help guide all of my kind of really um, bigger projects, some of the smaller ones that really we really can't get into it. But most of our projects, we use these uh, principles of Indigenous engagement. And let's use Mina Oshki and Dayang. That's a supportive housing project in downtown St. Paul. Um, uh, that we did for the Inda Young Center and Deb Foster. Um, that project, when we first got it, was an urban site. And my first thought was, was that statement that my mom said. I said, you know, we need to go. We don't know what the site was, what happened on this site. I said, somebody could have been murdered on this site for all we know. I mean, we need to go bless the site. And this isn't a groundbreaking. This isn't something that you put on Facebook. This isn't something that you announce. You just grab a small select few of the owner group and yourself and somebody who's traditional that can say a prayer and bless the site. And so we went there one morning uh, in a cold November day uh, right at sunrise and did a small blessing ceremony. And that made me feel a lot better about proceeding. Um, and so that's kind of been one of our things now is before we really proceed on a site or with a project of significance, we'll go out and do a ground blessing. And, and we'll do that. So that's where you start. You start from a good place and you kind of ask for permission. I think a lot of times we don't acknowledge that, you know, there's a lot of land acknowledgement now for, you know, right now we're sitting on Dakota land 
you know, where we're in this office here in Lake Elmo, this was Dakota land. And so they don't acknowledge that land and they don't start it off with asking Mother Earth for permission to, you know, when we do ground blessings or groundbreakings later on, that's when that spiritual person will actually kind of ask Mother Earth for forgiveness because we're going to, we're going to tear her up with shovels and we're going to disturb her natural beauty. And so those kind of things of going through a project and really approaching it respectfully is in that same way. You're making that building with a good heart. You're designing it with a good heart. And you're not designing it with ego. You're not designing it with self. You're designing it as a helper to help them get their vision to create a place that's good for their people. We pray at all of our, at all of our meetings. I've gone to construction meetings where they just roll up their sleeve and start, let's meet. Here's our agenda. Let's go. And uh, hold on here. Uh, let's pray. And, and it's not necessarily a religious thing. It's just a cultural thing of respect. You know, you always have to acknowledge the grandfathers and the grandmothers and earth and all those things and say, you know, we're here to meet about this project. And we make, and a lot of times if there's um, angst in the meeting or we have budget issues or the contractor's not getting along with the owner, I'm not getting along with the contractor. When you pray at the beginning of a meeting and ask for guidance and that this meeting will go good, it kind of settles things down. It kind of sets the vibe yeah. and people can't really argue. Um, and, you know, so that's kind of that whole making things with a good heart. I think it believes for the building too. If we, if you, if you have a project that just never really settles right and it doesn't go right, you know, it seems like to me, sometimes those are the buildings where I get callbacks. The mechanical system isn't working and all these other things. Well, maybe it's because it wasn't built with love. You know, that kind of, it's kind of a way out there kind of, but, I kind of believe in it and, and, it, and it works. It works for me. It, our projects are more successful when we have that good heart. Where does that good heart come from? For Michael, it comes from a deep connection rooted in family and native cultural traditions of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa. Did you grow up in Turtle Mountain? I didn't. I grew up in Aberdeen, South Dakota. Aberdeen, South Dakota, my mom worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and that's one of the regional centers. So I grew up there pretty much my entire life until I moved to Grand Forks to go to high school. And you have you gone? You've gone to the reservation. Yeah, I've I lived there for a couple of years in high school. And what does it mean to you? The reservation. Reservation is always going to be home. I might have only lived there maybe four or five years of my life, maybe a few more years than that. But um, there's nothing like it when you when you are driving down the road and you see that sign "Welcome to the Turtle Mountains." As soon as you cross that line. It's almost like a little bit of weight went off your shoulders. It's almost like I'm home. Um, I remember going to my mom's house on the reservation when I was a kid and uh, or younger and being able to sleep the deepest sleep ever and wake up feeling the refreshed person ever. It's almost like it was like recharging your batteries. Um, and I think a lot of people who live back home on the Turtle Mountains have the opposite effect. They don't want to leave because home is home. And, and that's where my people are. That's where, where our story resides. We'll be back with more Small Change. Small Change is supported by Thrivent through generous support from the Thrivent Foundation. Thrivent is driven by a higher purpose to help people achieve financial clarity and to make the most of all they've been given. Small Change is also supported in part by the McKnight Foundation, which works to advance a more just, creative, and abundant future where people and planet thrive. Learn more at mcknight.org. 
Welcome back to Small Change. Turtle Mountain is tribal land. It's home for Michael. Turtle Mountain is also the center of their traditions and history, a sense of community passed down through the generations. The story of the Turtle Mountains is that it's the heart of North America. And if you look at the uh, geographical center of North America, it is right there in Belcourt, North Dakota. And we talk about the story, the great flood story, where there was a great flood way back when, and there was a bunch of animals and, and one of our one of our uh, legendary um, people on uh, Nana Buju was on the back there and they were trying to find earth at the bottom of this great flood and nobody could do it. You know, the, the loon went down and everybody went down and the beaver and everybody went down to see if they could grab earth from the bottom of the flood and they couldn't. And the, the, the kind of lowly muskrat said, I'm going to give it a try. And they teased and laughed at the muskrat said, you're too tiny. You'll never do it. The muskrat went down to the bottom of the great flood and they was down there for a long time and they thought, you know, what happened? The muskrat came to the top and floated to the top and had perished. But when they opened up that muskrat's hand, just there was a little tiny bit of dirt. It had reached the bottom of the flood. It had died. And they put that dirt on the back of the turtle. And the earth grew from the turtle's back. And so that's where North America came from. That's our story. Is North America came from that, that muskrat in that earth in the back of a turtle. And if you look at the shape, if you Google it, you Google North America and the Great Flood story and the shape of a turtle, you'll see that the actual shape of North America looks like a turtle if you look at that kind of somebody that's sketched over it at one time. But uh, but Turtle Mountains, that's the heart of North America. And so to me, that's there's no place like home. I mean, there really is. Um, when I go home, I just automatically feel at ease. And I think that's where a lot of people feel, too, when they go home to their home reservation. Michael learned a lot about himself, his culture, and their traditions on the reservation. It made us wonder, how did he learn about money? How did I learn about money? I didn't. Um, <laughs> I, You know, what I did is I started working as a dishwasher when I was 14 at a restaurant in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and worked my way up and became a cook and uh, made my own money. I lived with uh, my sister. I moved out of my mom's place when I was an eighth grader and went, you know, no, no animosity there. I just told my mom, you know, I'm picking up. I'm going to go move in with sister Adrian up in Grand Forks. She needs help with her son, Kenny Bernard, who's a doctor now. And, uh, and so I went and moved with her and babysat and then went to school up in Grand Forks and, and just, it was just one of those things. And I started making my own money and started uh, cooking and working and going to school and all that stuff and worked my way all the way through college. And even when I was an architect, I even uh, worked in the kitchens because I liked cooking, so I worked on the weekends. But um, I didn't really learn about money. It, it was one of those things that, you know, we had the business class that we had in high school, so I learned about how to write checks and all those kind of things. So that wasn't that bad, but how to actually gain that generational wealth or to build wealth and how to how to do all those things. You don't learn about any of that stuff as a native kid. And I don't know if that's just not native kids or all kids, but um, it's kind of one of those things that we don't learn. You don't learn about um, mortgages or any of that stuff because not a lot of indigenous people have homes that they have under mortgage. It's either um, they live in trailer homes or they'll live in mobile homes or they'll live in apartments or they'll have um, homes that are provided through housing urban development programs on the reservation. They do have the 184 uh, housing uh, uh, loan program. And that the reason that 
most people, indigenous people don't have homes is on, on the reservation. That land is in trust. So you don't actually, even though it's your land, you can't mortgage it. So the 184 program is a guarantee by the federal government to the bank. So the bank can get beyond the fact that they can't seize your land so that they'll guarantee the loan for your house. So that's a lot of people. Um, people are starting to build houses now because they can actually use that 184 program. So that's a great program. Um, and I think that's probably some of the barriers that people don't know about that. And, you know, a lot of indigenous people don't have checking accounts. You know, they're still cash based, you know, and they'll still go to the bank every Friday or every other Friday to cash their paycheck. Michael is well aware of the many financial challenges Native Americans face. With his family, he's trying to establish some good financial habits. In 20 years, we think his kids will answer our question differently. My kids, um, I've helped help them with uh, checking accounts. Um, we actually just added our two youngest daughter, our two mid middle daughters, uh, Mackenzie and Miley. We added them to Greenlight. Greenlight is, I don't know if you know, it's an app um, that you can put on your phone that gets them a debit card, but you can also put chores right. on it. So you put chores on there, do the dishes Monday, Wednesday, Friday, mow the lawn, all that stuff. When they do their chores and check them off, then they get, they get allowance. They get 20 bucks a 20 bucks a week, pretty good allowance. Um, I never had 20 bucks a week when I was a kid. So they get 20 bucks a week, but only 17 of it goes into their spending account. $3 goes into their savings account. And so they're learning about it. We just activated their cards last night. And I talked to them about, okay, our card replacement cost is $350. If you lose this card, it's you're going to come out of your pocket. you know. And they said, well, what do you want me to do with the card? I said, let's yours go put it somewhere. Don't lose it. You know, if you go to the grocery store at mom, you could take it out and buy a candy bar or save it, whatever. So we're going to see how that goes. And I'm kind of excited to see where that goes. Um, they'll build credit and all those other things. Um, but as a young indigenous person, we didn't learn about any of that stuff um, except for what we learned off the reservation and business classes in Grand Forks. So when you moved in with your sister, how did you learn to save? How did I learn how to save? Um, well, we didn't have a lot of money. So, um, that was kind of, we had to save every penny we could. Um, we just kind of, she was a, a college student going into medical school. She had a, a young son and I was there with her. I think my mom helped her out with some money. And, uh, but I had my own money. So that helped because I wasn't a burden on her. And she had, you know, loans and Pell Grants and Indian Health Service, I think had a scholarship for her. Um, I didn't learn how to save very well either. Um, we did get treaty payments when you're 18 because we sold most of North Dakota to the federal government for 10 cents an acre. So when I was 18, I got, uh, I think $2,400. And, um, you know, you're a, you're a high school kid. You're a senior in high school, turned uh, 18 in September, your senior year. You get $2,400. What do you do? Well, you spend it. You know, you go to, you go to the mall on the weekend. You're going to go hang out with the boys. You grab a $50 bill. You got money for the weekend. You're set. Um, but that little pile of cash just kind of dwindles over the school year. And I heard something. If I would have taken a thousand dollars in 1990 and invested in Dell, I'd be multimillionaire today. If I would have just took, a th if somebody would have just told me, you know, can you save that thousand dollars or, you know, nobody, 
they just give you the money and they don't talk to you about it. And I think that's a lot of problems with indigenous nations now that get per caps or any of those other things. They really struggle with um, teaching their tribal members how to manage money. It's, it's a huge struggle. Um, you hear about some of the wealthier tribes like Shakopee, Minnewakanton, uh, and how they have, there's a real desire to teach them about money management um, for future generations and how to manage their money. So I think it's still an issue. And one of the themes in some of our conversations that we're having is how important is community to managing money? Because a lot of times we think about money in ourselves mm-hmm. as individuals, but in a lot of communities, um, you're part of a network or you're part of family, extended family, community. Mm-hmm. Is that your experience? I think that on my home reservation, the 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 idea of community is great. That everybody, it's a large community. The Turtle Mountains in North Dakota has a population of around 40, 42,000 people. Uh, on the reservation is about sixteen to 20,000. If that reservation was a city in itself, it'd probably be about the fourth or fifth largest city in North Dakota. Um, we have a lot of tradesmen. We have a lot of tradeswomen. Uh, we have a lot of professionals, a lot of people with degrees. The money does stay local, but I don't think that there's the money kind of changing within the community like you would see with the Hmong community here in the, in the Twin Cities. I don't think you see a lot of the um, money kind of I don't know what you would call that term, but I've heard of it where the money just kind of turns over seven times within the community. Um, we do have things like tribal employment rights ordinance. So if I go out and design a project on that reservation um, and we bid it out, so much of the labor is required to be from that reservation. And if you can't hire from that reservation, then you have to hire from a reservation in North Dakota. If you can't hire from a reservation in North Dakota, you have to hire somebody who's an enrolled member. And then you can hire somebody who's non-Indigenous. So that helps that money stay local. If I build a $30 million casino and $6 million stays local, that helps. Even though a lot of that $6 million goes off reservation. So it, I think learning how to have that money change over seven times is still a struggle because I think a lot of that money still leaves because, um, but there's a start to it. And I think people are starting to understand that. One of the things we do as an architecture firm is I'll make design decisions that enable that process even more. So like, let's say I'm building a gym, a square box, 40 feet tall. Um, the easiest thing in the world is to hire a precast contractor to come up and they make the precast off the reservation. They have it in a factory. They bring it to the reservation. They tilt it up in two days it's, and the, the shell's built in a week, right? Um, but they never hire any indigenous people to do that because they're all specialized crews, right? They bring in a crane operator and all these other guys who can weld and all that. So if I do that same building out of something like insulated concrete forms, insulated concrete forms are like like styrofoam Lego blocks. And I've worked with those manufacturers where they come in and train the kids in the tribal college. So a lot of times in tribal college, they will take these um, kids that they just trained and hire them to build the buildings. So what we've done then is we've built the same building. Maybe it takes a week longer, but they've built the same building and it's all tribal labor. Right. And so making those specific design. And I think that's what a lot of people, there's an extra level of care 
in this thing where you design things that can be built by the hands of the tribal members so that money stays local. So if I built that same building with a precaster and they had to hire somebody, you know, it's usually somebody to hold a broom, right? So on that, that million dollar project, only $10,000 stays local, but on a million dollar project with the insulated concrete forms, maybe $300,000 stayed local. So doing those extra things, um, I think a lot, a lot of people don't think about that, but it's kind of trying to make the economy stable, sustainable, um, is important too for us. So what's the purpose of money to you? The purpose of money for me is to provide for my family. I really don't have a lot of hobbies. Uh, I, I do architecture and I do family. Um, and, uh, they do things for me, like they bought me a smoker for Father's Day, which is pretty dang cool. But I, th- I think it's more about providing for my family's benefit to give them the things that I couldn't have when I was a kid. My mom, she didn't you know, like give me a lot of money or any of those kind of things. Even when I was in college, I'd be like, Mom, you got any cash? And she'd send me a, I'd get a letter in the mail, just one of those small envelopes and I'd have a check in it and it'd be a hundred bucks or something and love mom on the memo or something, you know, like that once in a while. But uh, for me, purpose of money is for the providing for the future of my family. You know, I did a will. I don't think um, many Indigenous people do not do wills. They do, just don't. And it's really important because we have a lot of land, many of us, and mineral rights. And um, what happens with, with that is if you don't have a will, the will gets divided up in all the heirs and all the other people. So if you don't have a will and you have tribal land, all of a sudden you have a piece of an acre and everybody has a spoonful of dirt because there's 360 heirs for an acre of land. So those kind of things are important. Um, but from that's just from a personal level what money is for. Um, I also, you know, as a partner in the, in the firm at DSGW and a shareholder, for me, it provides uh, ability to increase my ownership in the company and and go, gain kind of more direction of the company and to enrich myself in ways that I can also help others in the community. What is it you wish people understood about tribal lands? What they have to understand about tribes is that every tribe is a sovereign nation. We coexist with the federal government and with, with the United States, but we are sovereign nations onto our own. Our land is ours. Um, our rights are ours. We can make up our own decisions. My brother was telling me my mom helped the Nixon administration um, help develop the kind of uh, public law, 638 law, which gave self-determination to tribes. And, you know, Nixon has his own legacy. But one legacy he has with Indigenous peoples is that he kind of reawakened the Indian sovereignty and self-determination that tribes enjoy today. And And in his his actions actually became federal law to help tribes regain their own. And what they need to understand about tribes is they're sovereign. Um, within our own boundaries, we make our own rules. We make our own laws. We, we determine our own fate. And that's really important for Indigenous people to have that right. We don't have much anymore. Um, people think we're rich because we have casinos. You know, 2% of all casinos make any money. Um, most of them are economic engines. They employ many people and keep them off the county's um, unemployment and all those other things that you might get. But the land itself is our only resource, our people and our land. 
and just to respect the fact that we're sovereign nations, yet we're not there to tell you what to do, but we'd like the same respect. The seventh generation, and that's kind of a, a story in its own, but the seventh generation, what I've been told is when we think about seven generational values, you think about the three generations before you, your generation, and the three behind you. So it's a more, more a matter of respect of traditions that your elders had, respect for the people in your current time, you know, so I'm making the right decisions for my current time, and then thinking about future generations. And I think that's one of those ones that we need to, you know, frame a lot of our discussions in that strategic orientation that you'll hear me talk about from a Native Nation Builders perspective of really talking about what did our elders do? I mean... You think 150 years ago when we signed treaties with the government, um, how forward thinking were those indigenous people who didn't have college degrees to be able to negotiate with a federal government who really didn't, wasn't, didn't have your best interest in mind, but yet they were able to negotiate. Um, we weren't able to be, um, eradicated. We're still here. They were able to negotiate, um, healthcare and education for our people and retain some land and some rights for us and hunting rights and fishing rights and mineral rights. I mean, how did they do that? I mean, if I sat down with the federal government, I would have 20 lawyers with me to figure it out. And they didn't. Um, so I just kind of under- wondering where they're coming from and how they did it. Information about money isn't enough. Knowing more facts about money isn't enough. It's about people in the community caring for each other and looking out for one another. Shared values. Purpose. That's when financial decisions have the most impact. We can't say it enough. Community is the best investment a person can make. Thank you for listening. Small Change is a production of Minnesota Public Radio and American Public Media. Small Change would not have been possible without the work of many people, including Executive Producer Stephanie Curtis, Editor Alex Simpson, Intern Arshia Hussein, Producer Veronica Rodriguez, Original Music is by Dexter Wolf. You can find other Small Change episodes and find resources for more information about money by going to our website, smallchainstories.org. You'll also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 